Jess, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 175. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we've got a Q&A episode lined up for you once again, so going to jump straight into the questions. This first one, Jack, I would argue it's a good question. And I think that we should put it to rest because it really probably does boggle a few people's minds. This question asks, why are food labels allowed to be up to 20% inaccurate? Yeah, great question. And one that, as you said, many people do wonder, because I think as a lot of the people who are listening to this probably track their macros and they're, they're wondering, oh, why aren't, why aren't food labels completely accurate? And mm. they should be because I'm trying to track my food and I, I need them to be 100% accurate, otherwise mm. I won't achieve my body comp goals. Mm. Or maybe we actually just blew a few people's minds in the fact that we let them know, hey, when it says that your slice of bread has 10.3 grams of protein, that's actually up to 20% inaccurate. So some people actually might not even know that food labels are allowed to have a 20% discrepancy. Mm. It's quite wild when you actually think about it. Cause if you looked at a product and it said per serving, this has 100 calories, that means that it could actually have anywhere between 80 to 120 calories. Or if something said it had 50 grams of carbohydrates, that could actually have 60 grams of carbohydrates or 40 grams of carbohydrates. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure about the specifics regarding 20% plus or minus accuracy. And whether that's just been something that's documented across products or whether mm. that's like an actual rule or legislation that companies have to follow. Mm -hmm. But regardless, like it, it could very easily be more than 20% or it mm -hmm. could be less than 20%. And either way, you're never going to hit your macros perfectly, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the first points I'll make that the premise that we do have or should have very, very specific numbers to hit is a bit false like it serves its purpose in certain sports or certain endeavors like comp prep where the biggest thing by far is just consistency as opposed to necessarily being like okay i, I need to have like 1762 calories otherwise i won't lose weight like the body doesn't work like that mm -hmm. and our activity levels don't always work like that either unless we're doing literally the exact thing every day but even then it's going to fluctuate. So the premise that we need to be incredibly accurate with our nutrition in that sense is false, but there of course is a grain of truth to it. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's always going to be a meeting point in the middle. And I think with this, it comes down to consistency and establishing either a surplus, establishing a deficit and recognizing that it's, you don't need to be ridiculously accurate. Mm. There's definitely a time and a place where it's more appropriate to do so. So for example, let's say that someone is in a comp prep and they are trying to be very meticulous with everything because they just need to control all of their variables. Even if you have to accept that, okay, these macros that I'm tracking on my fitness pal and these foods that I'm weighing, maybe they might not be perfect down to the decimal point of the macro that it says it is. 
But we just have to obviously be consistent with what we're tracking and just accept that provided that my data is heading in the right direction. Or let's say, for example, you know, God knows someone wants to go on a ketogenic diet and they need to knock themselves into ketosis. It's really important that they aren't consuming carbohydrates in abundance. Usually to actually knock yourself in ketosis, you got to go about south of 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. So you want to make sure that the foods that you're tracking are semi-accurate, not out all outside that 20% range, so that perhaps if that's your goal, you could get yourself mm. into ketosis. Or it would be a huge thing too for, let's say, a, a powerlifting athlete who's trying to cut weight for a comp or a fighting athlete. You know that you need to manipulate carbohydrate content to manipulate glycogen stores, total body fluid, etc., so that you can artificially manipulate that scale weight for that given event. Mm. And I think ultimately, as kind of what you touched on, like the average person doesn't need to be accurate. Mm. And like that's what the nutrition information panels and the Australian dietary guidelines in general are constructed for. They're constructed for the average person, chronic d disease prevention. They're not constructed for athletes necessarily. Mm. And... There are certain people who need to be way more accurate. For example, there are people who can't metabolize an amino acid called phenylalanine, and therefore they need to be super specific with the quantity of that amino acid they're consuming. Otherwise, they, they can literally pass away mm -hmm. and die. So there are circumstances where someone does need to be really, really accurate, but the majority of people do not. And therefore, the nutrition information panels reflect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess if we wanted to look at, okay, how do we assess the highest level of accuracy in our food? We've spoken many times on this podcast about when you're tracking foods on MyFitnessPal, in the search bar, you actually need to specify nut tab, which is spelt N-U-T-T-A-B, because nut tab is the nutritional database here in Australia that's going to give you the most accurate macro and calorie and even some micronutrients too for that food but even nut tab has its downfalls and if you guys want to find out you know what exactly is in this food you can actually just google nut tab on google search or you can search the australian food composition database and you can type in the specific food that you want. So let's say that you type in a carrot. <laughs> You'll actually find that it gives you a description of the carrot, and then it talks about how they actually found the data that they are quoting in their results. And the interesting thing is I actually searched up carrot on the Australian nutritional database, and what you'll find is that they have taken the average from multiple carrots that they have actually tested in a lab. But the thing is about this, Jack, is that some of those values go all the way back to the 80s. So they're about 40 years old. They were testing, you know, how many carbs and how much beta carotenes in this carrot that was grown in some random field 40 years ago, four decades. So this information, it can actually be quite old. And another example of this is actually spudlight potatoes, which you'll see many dieters getting amongst because they are 25% lower in carbs than your average potato. If you actually read the spudlight potato packet, it has a little disclaimer that says, 
25% lower in carbs on average compared to the average potato based on the OzNut database from 2011 to 2013. For those who don't know, we're actually in 2023 now. So that data for your Spud Light potatoes that you're eating now is over a decade old compared to some other average potato. So Plus it's still plus or minus 20% accuracy. Exactly. So my goodness me, buy a normal potato. <laughs> mm, I agree. Yeah, and I think people obviously could be incredibly more accurate with the nutrition information panels, but there's just no need really. Oh. Like if we wanted to be more specific with what sort of nutrients are in that fruit or vegetable, we could do that or whatever product. But we also have to remember that depending on where it's grown, depending on when it's harvested, mm. depending on how much it's oxidized, that's going to influence the nutrient content of that food mm. anyway. So things are just fluctuating so much that it's just beyond a certain point too much time and money investment into that is unwarranted. Yeah, don't give yourself a headache because it's going to take way too much brain power and you might actually drive yourself crazy. Because yeah, you gave some really good points on why is there actually such a discrepancy, even with foods that are single ingredient foods. And for example, like the hydration status of a food, like when you buy a tomato, how much actual fluid is in that tomato compared to another tomato or the hydration component of some foods that are baked good. So let's say that you have a freshly baked loaf of bread. The hydration component of that is actually going to be higher compared to if you just have some stale bread. But if you still cut your bread and then weigh it, it's going to then have a different macronutrient composition from that scale weight, depending on how much fluid has been lost. So that's an example. What about like the ripeness of food and the way that like resistant starch changes in a certain food, depending how ripe it is. Like mm -hmm. you could have a banana that is nice and yellow or God forbid, you might like to eat green bananas, which are very high in resistant starch. Or you could have a banana that looks like it's been thrown in the dirt. <laughs> that thing is brown <laughs> and that's going to have way less resistant starch and just more sucrose. So that's probably going to influence how many carbohydrates and the calorie content of that food. Even the soil composition of different foods. Some people might not know this, but the reason why pasta is actually higher in protein compared to rice is because generally the soil that they grow wheat in actually has a higher nitrogen content. And we know that nitrogen, it's part of that backbone of protein. And we actually have to cleave the nitrogen off the carbon backbone of protein and we've got to excrete it through urine because just don't need that stuff <laughs> but they're also just two different grains yeah they are two different grains but also it comes down to the soil that they grow those grains in and how wheat thrives in a certain type of soil compared to rice but if you were to actually grow rice in soil that had a higher nitrogen content it might actually turn out that that rice has slightly more protein in it but it's obviously going to change the texture of that rice too so there's so many different, just, you can really get in the weeds with these things. But let's give some take-homes. Like if someone wanted to be as accurate as possible, given that even though some of these things are outside their control, how could they do that? <laughs> yeah, well, I think firstly, it's important to recognize that most people don't have to try and be as accurate as possible. And 
there are certain clients that I work with where if we're, for example, trying to pursue weight loss and we start off with a slightly more laid back style of tracking, or we maybe don't track at all, but that individual just isn't really achieving the results that they want. That's when we'll dig a little deeper and, and start adding some extra regimentation around their tracking. And um, I'll kind of only cross that bridge when we, when we need to. Obviously, for competitors, it's different. And someone who aspires to compete, I'll kind of make sure from the beginning that that groundwork is laid in terms of um, having that higher degree of, of tracking accuracy. But certainly some things that someone can look at is trying to have single ingredient options. So even if you make a meal that is, let's say, a, a nachos, you wouldn't just type into MyFitnessPal nachos. Nachos. Yeah, or nachos, you, whatever. Nachos. <laughs> nachos. Not, not. <laughs> See how that joke is like, nachos cheese. Mm-hmm. It's not your cheese. Nachos cheese. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> this is a hummus guy. <laughs> and just sushi. As opposed to sushi. And a roof, not a roof. Anyway. Jack, let's get back. You're making nachos? <laughs> yes. So you would, instead of just saying nachos into MyFitnessPal, you would type it and break it down into the individual ingredients. That's obviously very simple that hopefully most people is doing or are doing, but alternatively also just prioritizing raw options or uncooked options because once you start cooking stuff, really kind of skews the hydration status of that food, less predictable. And again, it comes down to consistency mainly. Mm. And also using the correct entry. So trying to use more accurate entries, like Tierra said, NutTab. Like NutTab isn't some special thing that is pre-programmed into MyFitnessPal. It's literally mm. just people have copied and pasted it from the website. So mm. if you're finding that something's not on NutTab, and it might not even be called NutTab because people, because NutTab doesn't technically exist anymore. It, mm. it used to be called NutTab. It's now like the Australian Food Composition Database. So um, if you're ever in doubt, about NutTab, then you would just go on that, that website and and then just copy and paste those entries in mm. yourself. Or USDA is a fairly fine mm. backup too. The only issue with USDA is the fiber and carbohydrates is different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if you're in Australia, it makes more sense to use NutTab. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess the only way that you could truly be tracking everything to the gram and have full confidence is just if you had some really strange diet. For example, if you were just eating like olive oil and table sugar and some egg white powder, because you could be pretty confident that one olive oil per milliliter, it's one gram of fat. There's no other macronutrient in olive per oil milliliter. per milliliter. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, one sorry. mil is one gram. Well, it's it's not quite 100% fat. What? No, because literally oil propels water, so there's no high... Like, unless you have, like, very trace micronutrients there, like your... Well, you also, you have trace probably amounts of the actual... Hydroxytyrosol. And the actual olive itself, mm. in the case of olive oil. <laughs> do, you want, do you have little chunks of olive in your first pressed <laughs> olive oil? <laughs> well, I just don't think it's 100% fat. I wonder if there's actually olive oils out there like that. Because you know how you've got orange juice and you've got the pulp in it? Mm. maybe they've got olive oil with little sprinkles of uh, olive skin but anyway olive like oil literally propels water so you can be pretty confident that if you were having like some might say it's hydrophobic <laughs> it is it, it's scared of the hydrogen <laughs> um but if you were to just have you know 
five mils or five grams of olive oil, that's pretty much five grams of dietary fat. Same goes for table sugar, same goes for something like egg white powder or some natural whey protein. But who wants a diet like that? So yeah, it really does just come down to just single ingredient items. And even if you are buying foods in the supermarket and they are single ingredient items, I would personally still recommend using a nut tab entry for those. So let's say that you're buying some frozen strawberries. I would still recommend using a strawberry entry off nut tab rather than just the barcode entry on those strawberries. Cause I've seen some really wacky entries before and I'm like, wow, you're actually tracking way more carbs that are actually in these strawberries. <laughs> and also like, don't just split hairs and stand there in the supermarket either. If you've got like two bags of frozen corn kernels and one says that, oh, per hundred grams, it has an extra two grams of carbohydrates compared to this other corn kernel. You're gonna be like, oh, well, I'm trying to watch my calories. I'm gonna buy the lower carb corn. Even though it's $10 more. <laughs> Come on. No, they're probably from the fr same freaking farm. They're just using different- Yeah, I know, but like some people, might pay like might pay a lot more just to get the lower carb food okay. even though it's, there's like two grams difference. And then you go you have to think about like come on depending on how much you're chewing that corn how much carbohydrates you're actually even mm. extracting from it because you're probably gonna see it later. Well, the prime example is the spudlights anyway. You're paying <laughs> a lot more for the spudlights when, in reality, it's mm. like they haven't done anything special to those potatoes. <laughs> it's not some sort of genetically modified potato. It's just potato. Mm. From my knowledge, at least. I think it is slightly genetically modified. They've like bred a whole bunch of different types of potatoes together. So oh, that... to be slightly lower carb. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. But so then maybe then... it has more resistant starch compared to... Or maybe just a higher hydration component. Mm. So you're actually just paying for a bit more water in your tater. But then you cook it anyway and you reduce the hydration. Exactly. Again, buy some normal potatoes. Unless they're literally on sale and they're cheaper than the other normal potatoes. But so, so, so silly. We'll just but have pumpkin. I think some of the least inaccurate foods out there, though, are ones that have proprietary blends and there's just multiple ingredients. So I would argue probably one of the like most questionable foods that are also very commonly eaten would be something like a protein bar. You know, like with protein bars, one, they're pathetic in size. The, they're, they're like literally 40 or 50 grams or something. But at the same time, there's like so many ingredients on them that you actually have to flip it over and like flip over the plastic because they have to write all of the ingredients across like multiple lines and they almost try to hide them. <laughs> mm. um, but if you actually read that ingredient list, one, it's humongous and there's so many different things in there. If you're taking the averages of averages of averages and you've got like 20 different ingredients and then your protein bar is like, this has 20 grams of protein in it. You just have to put like a big question mark on that and be like, mm, does it? So there's, there's big questions there. Even things like cereals, like if you flip over some cereal packets, even Milo cereal, so many different ingredients. Not really. Yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot more than just your oats, <laughs> mm. which is one. <laughs> but it's not like they individually test the food either. Mm. They just, they, they probably use a database themselves where they're like, okay, we add mm. some sugar into this. We add some, I don't know, barley and we add mm. some ground corn mm. and oats they don't test the final product for the for the calories and macros they mm. test 
they just add up all the individual ingredients and the approximations of but, each of them. But that's what I'm saying. Like if there's multiple ingredients in there, yeah, there's let's more say, right. yeah, yeah. And let's say on the Australian nutritional database for every single food, they've taken that average from at least 10 other foods of that same food. <laughs> You've got averages on averages. So the more ingredients you keep adding up, what about a frozen pizza? <laughs> God knows how many calories are in a slice of frozen pizza with all like, you know, supreme and the meat and the, the, the oh, wow, I can't. I thought it was 200 calories per slice. <laughs> On the dot. Yeah. To the decimal. Regardless of the size of the slice. But either way, guys, don't give yourself a headache. Don't get too lost in the weeds like we just did. But at the same time, just use some of those, I guess, points to uh, try to track things as accurately as you can if you did choose to track your macros. Mm. what's more important is your diet quality and mm -hmm. overall consistency here he is eat your fruits and vegetables <laughs> all right we're going to move on to this next question this one says how often should you change your training program mm. yeah definitely a question that i get asked mainly by clients which is understandable and basically yeah how long is a piece of string like essentially you probably don't need to change your training program as often as people do. Mm. And there's a, a number of different reasons for that, which we've discussed quite a few times on the podcast, but not recently. So I think the, the main point for me is just that your exercises that you schedule and program aren't going to plateau anywhere as frequently as you think they might. It's going to take a decent amount of time if you're truly efficient at the execution of them and especially if you're in a, a maintenance phase or a surplus phase and you train with sufficient intensity as well sometimes you will have to accept that certain exercises are going to plateau for small periods like maybe two three or even four weeks at a time but once you get to a certain degree or level of level of advancement with your training sometimes things do s slow down especially those more accessory based movements where something like a dumbbell lateral raise. We can't expect to be progressing every session in that. Otherwise we'll be lateral raising like the, the, the 30s. <laughs> Can you imagine someone just flying like at the very end of the dumbbell rack? Pretty sure that World's Gym Stafford has dumbbells that go up to like 70 or 80 kilos. Mm. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. Personally. Yeah, me neither. That would be, that would be absolutely wild. Yeah. <laughs> So that's one reason. The other reason is, of course, the skill aspect of, of lifting, which I, which I just referenced. Mm. And if you're chopping and changing, let's say every four weeks, which many coaches and many people do, especially if people prescribe to those like apps, which give you workouts, like often the apps will automatically change workouts, like even every week or mm. uh, every or too frequently, and they'll revamp the whole program. And it just doesn't give you enough time to like develop the skill of the actual movement. Mm. I think that's a really good point because we know that for highly skill-based movements, so we're talking about like multi-joint movements here, compound movements, it can take up to 12 weeks to actually become properly accustomed to a movement pattern like that. And any performance progressions that you're getting is really from like more of just becoming confident with that movement pattern. And it's more neurologically based. You usually have to get past that like 12 week point so that when you're actually seeing progressions in the gym, it's like, okay, this is probably more highly correlated with changes in muscular tissue rather than me just like neurologically feeling comfortable with having this weight on my body or lifting this weight in this manner. 
Yeah, so they're 12 weeks. And if people are changing their programs every four to six weeks, like there's no question why you're not getting actually better at something. You know, Mm. like you never go and see someone who has just a phenomenally strong squat and you're like, wow, you are really strong at back squats. And they're like, oh, thanks. Yeah, my my coach, he just put them into my program two weeks ago. You know, before this, I was doing leg press. Mm. No way, man. Like that person's probably doing squats for a decade to actually get that strong. So good. Or at least been doing similar squat-based patterns and have been cycling it in and out for a long time. There's that crossover, right? But I guess the reason why I said leg press to squats is because, yeah, sure, both are somewhat of a squat movement pattern and you use your quads, but we know that it's a hell of a lot more of a skill component to doing a good back squat compared to hopping on a pin-loaded leg press. Mm. But, you know, good things take time, so you just, you have to give them time. (laughs) Yeah, I think the toughest part is when someone, and this is like a, partly a legitimate reason is when they just get bored of the program and Mm. they're like, okay, I'm bored of this. I want something different. And I think it's important to reflect on why that person is bored. Like, are they Mm. bored because they're not making progress Mm. or are they bored because they're literally heading into the gym and doing the same exercise session after session. And Mm. yeah, yeah, that's a tough one, especially from a, from a coaching perspective, because partly you need to optimize the program and a lot of the time optimizing the program. And I mean, the generic answer is you're going to be best at what you enjoy, which uh, is sometimes true, but often people just use that as yeah. a bit of a scapegoat answer. And and sometimes you do just need to stick at something, even if it's not the most exciting thing, because that, that might be eliciting the best yeah. result. So, But I've always found with that argument, like when people are finding that a training program is getting boring or repetitive, I just question, man, did you ever play any sports growing up Mm. as a kid? Because growing up as a kid, playing different sports, like if you rock up to cross country training or you rock up to swimming practice, it's like, so coach, what are we doing today? We're going for a run. (laughs) Get in the pool. We're going for a swim. Like, sure, you can have little bits of variety within that. So for example, if you're going for a run, you might go for a long run. You might do some speed work. You might do a few drills. Or if you're hopping in the pool, you know, there might be a fun session where you get to put on your flippers or maybe you're doing some kicking. But I am telling you, man, like it is repetitive as shiz. And you do it nine times a week with swim meets on the weekends or, you know, races on the weekends. And The thing is though, you get really, really good at it because you literally do it for years on end. So I I just question like, you know, did you ever play any sports growing up as a kid? Because the gym is one of the most versatile places that you can go and do exercises. (laughs) Like we are just spoiled for different types of equipment. And even if you're getting bored of your same training environment, you can rock up to a different gym and use a few different other pieces of equipment too. And like you have multiple sessions per week where you're training different muscle groups, you're working in different rep ranges, like different movement patterns. You get to listen to your music while you're training, talk to your friends. Like you can, the, the gym has so much variety and coming from a sporting background, I've always just like questioned like, man, how could you ever get sick of this? Because like, this is just yes, golden. I'm not sure the argument you're using here because I don't, how I was interpreting this is people aren't getting sick of the gym. They're getting sick of doing the same thing every, every Mm. session. 
So they, they, if they're sticking to the same thing every session, they won't be able to try different pieces mm. all the time. But what I'm trying to say is that when you play sports growing up, you generally are doing the same thing. Even if it's not an individual sport like running or swimming, let's say you're playing a team sport, you rock up to basketball practice. You're like, hey coach, what are we doing today? He's like, we're shooting hoops, we are dribbling, we're gonna do some passing, we'll be on this court for the next 90 minutes. What are you doing sitting around? Get out there. You know, so like, it's, be a there, good coach. <laughs> there's always going to be repetition. You come from a rowing background. You're mm, out. More soccer than <laughs> rowing. Okay, but even then, you know, you're, you're kicking goals. You're running all over the place. You're trying to knock it kicked in the shins. <laughs> That's a good point, point with rowing. Like, what are you going to do other than row? Exactly. It is repetitive as shiz. So I think that if you come to love that and appreciate it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Any sort of athlete, like you, will be mastering your craft for years on end without complaints because you love it. But I think that if you come from that sort of background, then you really learn to actually appreciate the gym, just how wonderful it is. And you could never say, "Oh, this is getting so boring or repetitive," because man, there is just so much variety even within a training program. But don't you think it also depends on someone's goals? Like if someone is just exercising in the gym as mm. opposed to training, like... Yeah. Yeah. I understand. There's but less... Um, if you want more spontaneity, <laughs> if you want more spontaneity in your spontaneity. life... Spontaneity. Okay, so you're the nachos guy and I can't <laughs> say the fancy word for spontaneous. <laughs> but you could obviously do something like an F45 class. <laughs> you know, mix it up. You don't know really what you're in for when you when you rock up. But... Also, maybe like going back to the point that you made, people are getting tired of it or they're not looking forward to it because they feel like they're not progressing. The number of people that feel like they're not progressing because they're not even tracking their progress. <laughs> mm. So of course, if you're rocking up to the gym and you literally are just going through the motions, doing the same exercises, but you don't feel like you have any purpose in there, you're not being deliberate, you're not chasing many goals like, oh yeah, I really want to get to three by 10 with this weight on my shoulder press so then I can move up next session. If you're not tracking any of your loads, then that's understandable. Like, cause you really aren't actually striving toward anything new. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I remember when I started lifting and you should be making some of the most progress then. And I, I used to train at Fitness First because they in the holidays, they had that program for free, where if you were in high school, you would, you'd be able to go for free during mm. the day. And I was, I remember doing leg days there and wondering why I wasn't making any progress, but <laughs> I wasn't tracking anything. Yeah, exactly. But I think one, you just need to give it a good solid crack. You know, don't be like Ariana Grande and be like, thank you, next. <laughs> because I'm telling you, okay, Ariana Grande, she'd be a hell of a lot more grateful if she didn't just ditch her ex because he said one thing that was a little bit you know peculiar but she gave him a good crack you know date him for at least 12 plus weeks see how this guy turns out and yeah if it's a no-go you know just break it off and then move how on to something new date them for? <laughs> i don't know we'll, we'll have to phone her up and uh and ask but either way yeah then you might be spouting <laughs> some misinformation there. i but either way you have to give things a solid crack unless you know you have a gut feeling that when you go on a new program it's like ooh, this is not going to be sustainable for me long term or it's just it's very questionable you know there's some dodgy programs out there that are just like 
absolutely whack, like crazy high volume. You could get a training program that has you in the gym six days per week. You're doing 10 exercises, seven sets of each exercise, not even with a rep range, but it just says like to the death. <laughs> Everything's labeled like A1, B2, C3, D4. It's just like, I don't even, I'm so confused. <laughs> and also I am not recovering. And at the end of the training session, yeah, your heart rate's probably crazy elevated. You've broken a sweat, you feel exhausted, but did you progress? <laughs> mm. So I think that's the case of where, okay, maybe I should change training programs if this isn't evidence-based at all. But I think that if you're on a really solid training program, plus like if you're going to change it, you don't have to do a complete overhaul of the program unless your goals have changed or you and your coach have identified, okay, you've been on this training program now for about 12 weeks. And if we actually look at your progress photos, mm, you're actually not quite growing in the areas that we want you to, or, Hey, look, this muscle group's responding really well, but this one's lagging behind. I think that we should manipulate a bit of your training volume to be more dedicated toward your lats and a little bit less toward your quads, etc. But it doesn't have to be an, an entire overhaul. You might just change one or two exercises. And even then for a similar movement pattern, you might have, you know, uh, really just hitting a plateau on the hack squat. So you move over to the pendulum, like, or you change different types of leg presses, but it, it's not like something brand new because I think really getting across the point that program progression does not equal physique progression. Of course, if you start a new program for those first few weeks, you're adjusting to the new routine, the new exercises. And that might be a little bit exciting because you know, you're kind of hitting mini PBs each session and you are progressing, but you can't guarantee that that's actually going to help progress your physique long-term. Yes. If you are chopping and changing all the time, the main reason you're progressing is because you're just adapting quickly to, to new movements. And the real gains are had, as you said at the beginning of this topic, where you master a movement or, or get adept at a movement and the progressions that you have probably after, I think 12 weeks is a longish time. Like it could happen as soon as like six weeks, especially mm. if you're if you're trying a squat pattern and you've squatted before, mm. then you'll probably start to reap hypertrophy gains a little sooner than if you do like your first deadlift for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's always going to be context behind it, but, uh, either way, if you're questioning your program, how about you just hit up a coach that, you know, knows what they're talking about and they can maybe review things for you and mm. uh, give you some really honest feedback. Yeah. On that topic as well. I think people, one of the biggest things that I've seen across people in general is just a real underestimation of the importance of training and for people who want to change their body comp, like mm. often it's just the focus on nutrition and they'll be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to the gym. And the, ask, the act that I go to the gym means that, okay, I've got the training covered down pat. Like mm. I'm going to get results, but it's my nutrition that needs work. In reality, same with nutrition, it's kind of like saying, oh, I'm eating healthy. So I'll, I'll then optimize my, my, my gains or mm. I'll lose weight as, as soon as I'm eating healthy. It's not quite that simple and it's not as simple with that with the training as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why people like us have our jobs. Yeah, absolutely. But that's why I think that you will see people who they train ridiculously hard, but then you do a dietary recall with them. And it's like, man, this person's not even getting even protein distribution throughout the day. Sometimes they aren't even eating enough protein. Like their diet quality and sports nutrition isn't top tier, but they have a very impressive physique. 
it's probably because they know how to train with intelligence and intensity. Mm. But imagine if you marry the two together, you then just tweak a few things with that person's diet and you keep their awesome approach to training. That's where you have people get really, really solid results. Mm. But absolutely right. You could have someone with the most nutritious diet in the world, but if they're training like a wimp. Well, I honestly <laughs> see that way more often when people say come to me for a dietary recall and well, they come for me for their nutrition and then I do a dietary recall and the diet is fine. Like they're, mm. they're having good like fruits and veg. They're having enough protein through animal sources if they're omnivorous. And like I, I basically make like a couple recommendations and they're like, oh, is that is that it? Mm. Because yeah, there's nothing really else to change. Yeah. Um, and then it, 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 if they're therefore not getting the results that they want, like it's, it's a no brainer to me that it's a training. Mm. And some people are a little opposed to uh, that, but um, yeah. No, it's about being honest. And especially mm. the people that approach us, like they have physique related goals. Yeah. <laughs> so in order to han- enhance your physique, you have to be providing that stimulus. And I think a good coach is always going to be honest and communicate it in a good way, of course. But that's why I just think it's so fundamental that the people that you're working with, if they're doing a training program with you, you need to see how they're training. I ask all of my girls to just, I'm, I give them full permission. I'm like, send me as much training footage as you like. Like I will review it all and I will give you honest feedback on it. And it's, it's quite common when you do sign up with someone for the first time, like one, they're a bit cautious. They want to make sure that they're doing the movement pattern correctly. Like usually form is adequate and you can always give someone a compliment like that. You know, it's like forms really good here, you know, like great range of motion, but I really think that you can lift a little bit more weight. And that's why I personally actually give all of my clients like new weight metrics so that they can keep progressing because a lot of people just underestimate their true strength potential and they're scared to you know really grit their teeth and maybe make an oomph in the gym and really really push themselves but that's one of the main pieces of feedback is like this look good but next week like you need to lift at least 10 kilograms heavier on those rdls or you probably had like four reps left in the tank on that shoulder press (laughs) they need to turn on some nickelback (laughs) yes and get the nickelback billing and uh, it'll be pb central baby (laughs) What's your favorite Nickelback song? Oh, God. I really do like... Uh, just Rockstar is so catchy. Yeah, fair mm. enough. And I know that's definitely one of the most top played. Mm. I think it's the only one you can think of right now. No, I can think of like Saving Me and then also that one that talks about... <laughs> you know, someone might be down on their knees in the dirt. Right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that was only two questions, but we definitely delve quite deep into those, Jack. I think we should probably wrap it up here. But last question of the day, what's something that you learned this week? I learned that if you get a cut on the beach on your foot, that you should probably make sure that you clean it straight away um, and be mindful of it because I did get a cut on my foot. It was literally just a light scratch, very not very deep at all. and. Um, yeah, got infected. So mm. had to um, start applying some antibiotic ointment to that. And it's still not healing very well, to be honest, but um, hopefully it, it, uh, it goes away soon. Mm. It's tough when you get some sort of cut on an area of your body that's always exposed to other things. You know, on the very bottom of your foot, you're always walking around. Or it's mm. like, have you ever had a cut on your elbow before? You're always bending your elbow. So it's like so hard to properly heal and scab over. Mm. Yes. 
Well, um, I will probably be wearing shoes. Well, I've got a pair of shoes now that I wear on the beach mm. that um, I don't mind getting wet. So. And those good old Bunnings boots. Yes, <laughs> which I'm not a big fan of. But. I have a theory that, because I actually don't wear those anymore. I probably still will start wearing You're them. You're saying your feet are so hard. <laughs> My feet are pretty tough. I could give, you know, Frodo a run for his money. <laughs> Hobbit feet. Maybe not as hairy, but they are tough now. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I could climb along the uh, New Zealand terrain. Um mm. But no, I have a theory that when I first bought those Bunnings boots, I think my calves atrophied. I'm not because I was going for a lot of walks on the beach in those boots. But I think like not having proper, you know, like walking in sand is actually and running in sand is apparently one of the best ways to properly like build your calves a little bit. <laughs> Lawrence is probably just shaking his head at me. <laughs> but I do have a theory that when I started wearing those thick boots on the beach and doing a lot of my steps in them, my calves got a little bit smaller. So mm. I've actually stopped wearing them, but I'll probably bring them back a little bit in winter because the water is very cold and it does freeze your feet. Mm. Yes. <laughs> what did you learn this week then? <laughs> so what did I learn this week? Okay, so I learned that there actually is a difference between raisins and sultanas, or as an Australian would call them, sultanas. Because when I moved here to Australia, one, I just thought that everyone was talking gibberish because there is so much slang in this country. But I, one of my favorite snacks to eat as a kid was a mixture of raisins and some nuts. How do you know they weren't sultanas though? <laughs> That's the thing. They were raisins. Well, in Canada and then the U.S., you call them raisins. But I always thought that raisins and sultanas, it was like synonymous. It was just an interchangeable word. So when I moved here, I was like, what are they talking about, these sultanas? Like, these are my raisins. But it turns out that I think they're actually different. So a raisin, especially in the U.S., it's like a black grape. It's a dried black grape. Here in Australia, a sultana, sultana, they are a green dried grape. So there actually is a difference. Yeah, so... Are you sure about that? Well, that's what I learned from my parents, apparently. <laughs> I still call them raisins because it's just ingrained in golden, me. Something called golden raisins or mm. golden sultanas, sorry. So... I don't know if it's just green grapes, but there's certainly a difference. Mm, I'm yeah. sure someone knows. Because I find that raisins are the ones that sometimes have seeds as well. Mm, whereas mm. sultanas never have seeds. Yeah. I think a lot of grapes these days have been genetically modified to not have seeds anymore. Yeah. But uh, either way, I, I always thought that Australians were just a little bit whack. Because like when I first moved here, people were talking about going to the beach with their thongs and their togs. Like, don't forget your togs. And I'm like... What does that even mean? <laughs> so like, you know, a swimsuit or your... Well, that's why I said they're thongs. Or your swimsuit or your Or your flip-flops, you know? People are mm. calling thongs and togs. Like, yeah, it's a whole different language over here in this country. So just a heads up. And also a heads up if you're Australian and you go over to the US and you, you know, just say like, oh, I've just got to grab my thongs. Like people will look at you cross-eyed and be like, what, mm. are you a stripper? <laughs> uh, anyway, um... Thank you guys for listening very much. If you did enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.